This morning, um, we are actually going to start a new series. And, a new, and this new series that we're starting is in many ways building upon what we have been talking about for the last several weeks as we spent um, uh, the, early, the whole month of September walking through a single chapter in Romans, Romans 12. Uh, and in the end of Romans 12, we were learning about how sort of we as Christians become this transformed people that live in community with each other as a sort of countercultural demonstration of what we would call the kingdom of God, and, and that that affects the way that we relate to each other. It, it affects the way that we treat our enemies. It affects the way that we invite people into our households. And, and so right now what we're going to do is sort of expand upon that. Um, in the fall each year, we do something kind of like a vision series. We, we spend a few weeks just sort of focusing again uh, on what is at the center of Vancouver Vineyard Church. Like, who are we? Where are we going, and how do we join God's mission that he is calling us into? And so as you heard earlier in the announcements that we just had from, from Eddie, this is essentially our vision mission statement, that we are a church empowered by the Spirit for a purpose, to practice and proclaim the kingdom of God for the renewal of our city. And so today, all we're going to do is just spend some time unpacking some of the ideas that are behind this statement, talking a little bit about what it means for us to become that kind of church. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and show it off to somebody around you, because then they'll be really impressed with you. And then open it up to uh, Matthew chapter 4. And what I want to do right now is I want to just show us that we are a church that is actually rooted in a story. And it's a story that every follower of Jesus throughout all of history is connected to. To understand Vancouver Vineyard Church, we need to start with Jesus. So the beginning of our church's story and is the beginning of all of, sorry, the beginning of the church's story, like the global church's story, is the beginning of all of our story. It all starts with an invitation from Jesus. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read that Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, and when he came out from the water, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and rested on him and affirmed that, that he is God's, that he is the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And the Spirit of God filled him and empowered him and then drove him out into the wilderness. And we read that he fasted for 40 days, and that while he was out in the wilderness fasting, uh, that the, the, the Satan came to him and began to tempt him. And after he finished that, that period of temptation in the wilderness, we read that he came back from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And before Jesus does anything else, before any miracles, before any demons are driven out, this is how Jesus begins his ministry in verse 17. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's a weird place to start, but this is essentially where I think we start the story of the church. The story of the church begins with Jesus coming back from the wilderness, going to a small town by the banks of a sea. 
And Jesus notices a few ordinary blue-collar guys working the family business. And this encounter that we see Jesus have with these young men, it changes not only the course of their lives, it changes the course of all of human history. And from this moment, Jesus goes about from town to town, ministering to and inviting ordinary people like you and me to join him on his mission to reveal the love of God the Father and to announce the coming of something called the kingdom of God. And the very next verse is a summary of everything that happened for the years that followed in Jesus' ministry. He began to gather some apprentices to join him on the journey, and this is what he did. Verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And so Jesus' whole ministry is centered on this idea of the kingdom of God, what uh, philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard calls the range of God's effective will. The kingdom is where God wants done is done, where what God wants done is done. And Jesus went around Israel announcing this to all the people. He, He came into a town and he said, good news, God is in charge. Adjust your life to the kingdom that's at hand. And what is this kingdom like that Jesus was announcing? It's what Jesus then goes on right after this passage to describe for three chapters. Right after this last passage, a summary, we read three chapters called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains what the kingdom of God is like. It's a kingdom that's ruled by God. It's an upside-down kingdom where the way of power is overcome by sacrificial love. It's one where authority comes through humility and servanthood. It's one of nonviolence and love for your enemy. Uh, one of the, the early leaders in the vineyard movement, of which we are a part, uh, he described Jesus' life and ministry like this. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it is. Uh, John Wimber says that Jesus was full of the spirit without measure and empowered for a purpose, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. And if you're sitting here and you're really quick and you're like, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like the mission statement for this church. You're right. This, we, we ripped that off. <laughs> unapologetically, we're just doing that. If it was good for Jesus, it's good for us. That Jesus was full of the Spirit. That when he came up from the waters of baptism, the Spirit of God rested on him, and he began his ministry full of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. He went about correcting the wrong theology and eschatological vision that the Pharisees were teaching people. He taught us the way of God's kingdom was not one of strict obedience to the law, but rather the transformation of the heart. And then Jesus demonstrated the kingdom. He healed the sick. He freed those who were oppressed by the demons. He fed the hungry. He clothed the poor. He restored the blind. And he welcomed the outcast and the foreigner. He said, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. He continued he, by, by, conf- by confronting the rich and those who oppress the poor. He cleansed the temple in righteous anger. He breaks social and political mores by eating with prostitutes and tax collectors and even by sitting at a wall with a Samaritan woman talking to her about the kingdom of God, even though she was the ethnic outsider. 
Jesus went around teaching about this kingdom, explaining it in parables, clarifying misunderstandings of what God was up to. He revealed to all people the Father, pointing us to a new paradigm of how we relate to God. He's no longer to be one who is approached as this sovereign deity who is big and scary and ready to pounce and punish, but he is actually a tender father who loves us as his children. He taught about the Father's love and forgiveness, his tenderness towards everyone. He revealed God's compassion to those who are suffering or are on the margins. And in all of this announcement and all of this demonstration of the kingdom of God, we see that it truly was good news. And then he revealed to us that there are sort of two primary kingdom paradigms that we need to understand to, under, to, to be able to lay hold of the fact that the gospel is still good news. And the first paradigm is what we call the upside-down kingdom, that the kingdom of God flips on its head all of our human categories for how power and privilege work. He upends our expectations for who is happy or blessed and who is cursed. He looks at the religious elites those we would consider total insiders and told them that they're completely missing God's kingdom. And then he lifts up all the wrong people, sinners and the poor and those who are suffering. And he says that the kingdom of God is available and at hand right there among them. And according to Jesus, the way to experience the good life is upside down. It's by laying your life down and embracing the way of the cross. The way to receive true riches is actually by giving away your worldly wealth. The way of power and authority actually comes by becoming a servant. The way to overcome and rule over your enemy is by loving them and turning the other cheek. And the ultimate expression of the upside-downness of this kingdom is visible at the cross of Jesus. How does Jesus exercise his authority and power as the long-awaited king of the universe? By giving up his power on the cross that Jesus allows all of the other powers, the powers of this world, of Satan, of sin, of death, and even of hell, to crush his mortal body and with it the hope of his kingdom. All of the evil of the universe exhausts its power on him at the cross. And it's in his laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin that he actually overcomes the evil that sought to destroy him. In Jesus... Ultimate victory comes in the form of surrender. The darkness that tried to extinguish the light is, is itself extinguished by Christ's sacrificial love. And it's at the cross that the upside-down kingdom is inaugurated, which brings us to the second paradigm, that the kingdom of God is already and is not yet that it has begun in the person of Jesus, but there is a gap between the initiation of God's kingdom and its fulfillment. In nerdy theology terms, we call this enacted, inaugurated eschatology. You guys all know about that, right? Enacted, meaning that it was demonstrated by Jesus and it continued to work out through his followers. Inaugurated, meaning that it had an official beginning in the person of Jesus and was confirmed through his death and his resurrection. And eschatology, meaning that the promise of the age to come is now overlapping with the present age that we live in now. And so although the kingdom of God is at hand, we are still waiting for its fulfillment. It is now and it is not yet. It is initiated, but it is not yet realized. And we, as his followers, exist in this weird middle space 
Our apprenticeship to Jesus is in light of the age to come while still facing the realities of today. Now, like, what does that mean, right? What, what does that even mean? It means this, that at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And that we who put our faith in Jesus, the power of sin no longer has any hold on us. It has no claim on our identity. We are no longer children of wrath, despised by God according to our sin, but instead we are forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters. But we live in a time now where we still struggle. We still struggle with our sin. That we live in a time where sickness and pain still rules in our mortal bodies. But we have the hope of resurrection in the age to come. And that, that through prayer, through leaning in on doing the Jesus stuff, we can sort of drag the promise of the age to come into our present reality and see people healed and made whole. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the message that Jesus came proclaiming. Jesus' whole life was about preaching the kingdom of God and demonstrating the kingdom of God. And after his death and resurrection, after three years of sort of showing us what it's all about, he then turns to his followers, these ordinary men and women, people just like you and me, and then he commissions them to keep on doing the same stuff that he did, which brings us to Acts chapter 1. Go ahead and flip over there if you've got your Bibles. And in verse 1, Luke writes this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So after Jesus went to the cross and then and died and then he was resurrected for 40 days, he went around town meeting with different people, showing them his resurrected body, and he had one thing that he wanted to communicate to them over and over and over again. He wanted to teach them about the kingdom of God. Keep reading. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Which means this. He said, I came out of the water. I was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power that gave me everything that I need to be able to do the ministry that I just did with you. And just so I want you to do the same thing, to wait until you are immersed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep reading. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it finally time? Is the great age to come about to descend on us and we're going to rule forever with you? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven, he looks at his followers and he tells them to wait for the same Holy Spirit that filled him to baptize them. And that then they were to go out and do everything that he had been doing and to spread out and to do it all the way to the ends of the earth. And so if Jesus was filled with the Spirit without measure and and empowered for a purpose, we see that now the church is about to be filled with the Spirit without measure and empowered for the same purpose, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. Uh, Ordinary people like you and me were being filled and sent. And in his book, More, by Simon Ponsonby, he describes this moment like this. 
He says those early Christians had no degrees from the best universities. They had been on no MBA management courses, gone through no psychological Myers-Briggs compatibility profiles. They had no financial investment portfolios, but they had a revelation of God, a revelation of their inheritance in Christ and Holy Spirit power from on high. And with this, God took 120 people and shook the whole world. And this, my friends, is your story, and it's mine. This is the invitation and the commission that God gives to every single one of his followers, that we, like Jesus, are called to be filled with the Spirit without measure. We are people who seek to be continually filled, taken over, consumed, saturated with the Holy Spirit. But this Filling, it isn't meant for us to just sort of have like a woo-woo emotional experience. It's not meant for us to kind of momentary spiritual high. It's not something that's just sort of to enhance our lives or make us feel good. No, the filling of the Holy Spirit is for a purpose, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom, to practice and proclaim the kingdom of God for the renewal of our city and to the ends of the earth. And so if the summary of Jesus' ministry is to proclaim and demonstrate, how then is this meant to be worked out in your life and mine? How do we as a church live out this call, this commission that Jesus has given us? That's a really good question. I'm so glad you're asking it. When we talk about this paradigm of proclamation and demonstration, I actually think that there are sort of two dimensions to it. There is an internal reality, and there is an external reality. Let, let me explain. Hang with me for just a moment. The internal way that we experience proclamation and demonstration is like this. The power of proclamation internally is really about the importance of letting the gospel begin to take root at the very core of our being. It's being transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Romans 12 would say it. And the way that our minds is renewed is by continually preaching to ourselves the truth of God's word, the hope of the gospel. It means this, theology matters. Knowing the Bible and understanding the gospel is crucial as a follower of Jesus. It is not secondary. It is not something that you hear one time and that you sort of respond to one time and then everything is good to go. It's actually something that we need to internalize and live into every single day. A.W. Tozer famously said it this way, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What we think about God, it shapes who we become. It forms our identity. It directs our actions and our future, our values and our convictions. That before we can proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and our friends, we actually have to learn how to habitually proclaim the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. And then the internal demonstration of the kingdom is really about our formational practices. It's living into the truth that we, that we believe through obedience to God's word. 
It's practicing spiritual disciplines that align our bodies and our minds and our passions and our desires with the truth that we believe. So internally, proclamation and demonstration is really all about theology and formation. Say theology and formation. Yeah, and it matters, right? Okay, good. And then externally, we follow Jesus' example of proclamation and demonstration as well. We proclaim the kingdom by sharing our faith with other people. We talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives. We teach our kids what we believe, and we unpack the scriptures with them each day. We speak identity and the love of the Father over everyone that God puts us around. And then we demonstrate the kingdom in the same way that Jesus did, by doing all the same stuff that Jesus was about. And while we may say that, like a hearty amen to the call, you know, we're good charismatics, right? We believe that God has called us to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. But we also believe that the demonstration of the kingdom happens in a thousand different ways every single day. A million unsexy, unnoticed sort of obediences every single day. We demonstrate the kingdom through the way that we treat our families and our friends and our roommates. We live out our, a higher ethical call than that of the world around us. We demonstrate the kingdom through unimpeachable integrity, doing what is right when no one is looking. We demonstrate the kingdom through radical generosity, inclusive hospitality, welcoming those who are on the outside to not just come and sit around us in a church service, but to be part of our family and to join us at our tables. We demonstrate God's kingdom by loving the unlovable, even going so far as to love our enemies. In 1 Peter 2, we read this call, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us that our whole lives are a demonstration, a witness to the kingdom of God. And that it makes no sense if you go out one day and you put your hand on the sick and you see them healed or you, you, you command healing in somebody who is physically injured and suddenly they can get up and walk. But if your life reflects nothing else of the kingdom, our lives are to be the representation of the will of God in the world. And Peter goes on to write, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always, prepared to give, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That your life is meant to provoke questions for which God's kingdom is the answer. Your life is a reflection of the goodness and the glory of God. Yes, we demonstrate the kingdom by signs and wonders. We heal the sick. We do all of the Jesus stuff, but we also witness to the kingdom of God through our ordinary lives lived out among our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers as a reflection of God's kingdom. And this life of proclamation and demonstration that every single one of us is called to live, it leads us to sort of our ultimate goal, the renewal of the city. And we don't, we don't seek the renewal of the city through coercion or power, but through sacrificial love. We seek neither to control nor to abandon the world, but instead to love it into new life through humble participation. In short, as followers of Jesus, how do we live in this world? We live in this world through, to, by exerting influence. 
Jesus' vision was that the church would actually be like the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we would be a city on a hill doing the kingdom stuff, and that people would see our good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. The word influence is derived from a Latin root word that actually means to flow. And so influence doesn't imply power or coercion or control. It actually, it actually suggests effortlessness, that we influence people by being ourselves, by becoming more and more the people that God designed and created us to be, and that people would then be drawn to Jesus when they see our lives. We influence culture through participation. As Christians, we don't hate the world. We don't protest it, but we serve and we participate with a vision towards God's future for our community. Uh, one of my favorite movies is a film called To End All Wars. Has anybody here seen that movie? Kiefer Sutherland? It's great. Um, it's on Prime. You should rent it or watch it. Um, and, and this movie, To End All Wars, it's the story of a man named Ernest Gordon, who was a British officer who was captured by the Japanese in World War II. And he was among this large group of prisoners of war. And this, these prisoners, they were put to work building the Burma-Siam Railway through the Thai jungle. And the working conditions were brutal. I mean, like thousands and thousands of men died constructing this thing through disease and just the brutality of their captors. And the Japanese, they despised anyone who was willing to surrender rather than die in combat. And so they treated these prisoners like they were subhuman. Prisoners were beaten to death for the smallest infractions, if they were lagging in their work even. And they were forced to work in 120-degree heat, surrounded by all kinds of disease and lack of sanitation. More than 80,000 men died building this railroad. And these prisoners who were existing together, they, they lived in sort of like a survival mode. It was every man for himself. And so prisoners despised each other just as much as their captors did. And they fought each other you know, in competition for sort of meager provisions. And then one day, something shifted in the camp. One of the returning work crews was missing a shovel. And the Japanese guard began shouting that if the shovel was not returned, that they would begin to shoot prisoners. And as he lifted his rifle to shoot, one prisoner stepped forward and confessed that he was the one that had taken the shovel. And so then the guard publicly, brutally beat him to death. And later in the afternoon, it was discovered that the shovel was actually there all along. It was an inventory error. But this act of selfless love, it transformed the camp. The truth of Jesus' words, that no greater love has any man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, this truth, it began to sort of shape the culture of the camp. And Ernest Gordon later recalled, death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life of fellowship. 
And so the kingdom of God, it slowly started to become the dominant culture of the camp. And in the midst of the hell of war, the beauty of God's kingdom was on display. Instead of fighting one another for survival, the prisoners began to actually pool their gifts and their talents. They started a jungle university offering courses in philosophy and ethics, history and economics, music, and they even taught people nine different languages. They built a church in the middle of the jungle camp. They made their own paint and they created art. They made their own instruments and performed Mozart. And most incredibly, they treated the guards who were brutalizing them with kindness and compassion under the ethical vision of God's kingdom. And ultimately, when the allies had victory and these prisoners were being released, the love of Jesus compelled them to have mercy on their captors, not exacting revenge, but extending forgiveness, the greatest miracle of all. And Philip Yancey, reflecting on the story, wrote, Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. And this, my friends, that quote right there, this is what we're aiming for as the church, okay? If you want to know what it means to be part of Vancouver Vineyard Church, it's this, that we are a community of regular people, ordinary people, who have been invited personally by Jesus to join him, full of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God right here in our community. And for each of us, it'll look a thousand different ways, right? And that each of us are invited by God to lay our hands on sick people, to announce the kingdom of God has come and to see them made well and healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom may be demonstrated through some of us who experience incredible suffering and we choose to be like Jesus, forgiving even though we are sinned against. It may look like having the integrity to resist the pull of advancement through doing the wrong thing, but, in cho but choosing rather the harder way of Jesus. They can look a thousand different ways, but we want to live in, we want to, to witness to the kingdom of God. We want to proclaim and demonstrate what God is doing in our lives. And we want to do this all together. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how we live into this vision. Um, next week, I'm actually really excited. We're going to have a special guest speaker from the Vineyard National team, uh, John Elmer. He's from uh, a Vineyard Church in New York. Uh, he'll be joining us to talk about what it looks like for us to seek God's heart for our community. And then in a couple weeks, Jace is going to give the world's quickest family-friendly sermon about formation because it's Family Worship Sunday. And then we're going to spend time talking about God's presence. We're going to talk about community. We're even going to reflect a little bit on sort of the history and heritage of who we are as the Vineyard Movement. So over the course of the next few weeks, I really want to encourage us to lean in, lean into God's invitation for us, and let's continue to become who we already are. Amen?